Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. My guest today is Dr. Rob Gaffney. He's a psychiatrist, a former extreme skier, and the author of Squallywood, a guide to Squaw Valley's most extreme lines. In this episode, we'll talk about the brain and risk-taking. People tend to think that the highest risk-takers are these independent thinkers, that they make their own decisions, that they make their own calculations. That's kind of like thinking that the earth is flat. Later in the episode, Rob will talk about a movement called Keep Squaw True, as unwanted real estate development threatens the North Lake Tahoe area. After Rob's interview is our company spotlight segment with a brand called Koala Tree. They make outdoor apparel out of recycled materials. First, I'll speak with their founder, Charlie Bessie, then Hannah Van Wetter and I will review the trailhead pants. Now here's my interview with Dr. Rob Gaffney. It was really funny. So this morning I was doing a little bit more research about you and you said in your email, maybe we should talk about like what it attracts us to risk, maybe from like a, the perspective of neurobiology and sociology, you said. And then, yeah. uh, and then I get to my, my uh, nine to five job and we're working on a grant and uh, this part of the grant that I was writing was all about how humans are risk averse. Uh, <laughs> are we risk loving, risk seeking, or are we uh, risk averse? You know, it's it, it's a complicated picture, but you know, you can distill it down into some brain regions, which are very interesting because it helps us kind of understand uh, just this kind of binary dynamic between seeking reward and getting away from risk mm. or what we call risk aversion. And, uh, you know, historically, uh, it was very important for us to, you know, from a species standpoint, a survival standpoint to be risk averse in a lot of ways, uh, because obviously we had to get away from anything that might eat us. And so to pass on our genes, we had to be very aware and vigilant of the risks and the things uh, that were around us. And so, yeah, we're definitely risk averse in a lot of ways, but, you know, survival also depends on reward too. You know, if you're going to eat, you're going to find a water hole to drink water. And if you're going to have sex, you got to have reward because otherwise you're not going to be driven to, to do those things. Mm. So, yeah, so there's a pretty healthy combination of the two that really promotes survival. So, yes, we, we definitely have uh, aversion to risk, but we also have this attraction to risk as well. And uh, am, am I right in thinking that certain people are more inclined to take risks than others? Yeah, certainly. You know, there's there's diversity in everything. So we have tall people, we have small people, we have people with different colored eyes, and and people are going to have different ways that they uh, address risk, whether they're more risk averse or not. And so there's a lot of diversity out there, and diversity is really important, again, for the survival of the species. And so you're going to have some people on one end of the spectrum, much more, pe many more people in the middle mm -hmm. than, you know, fewer people on the other side. Well, so it's funny because so. when I was originally thinking about this distribution of risk averse and risk loving people, I thought maybe it might be bimodal. Like you've got a bunch of people who are not who are risk averse and then a bunch of people who are risk loving but then i realized it's probably just the people who are risk loving and taking all these extreme risks just get more visibility 
Yeah, I think one of the reasons that you may think it's bimodal is because we may think about it that way. You know, we think about mm -hmm. people who tend to kind of go for it, and we think about people who tend to be a little bit more anxious about going for it. And so we, in our minds, we kind of simplify it by dividing those two groups. Easier story to tell. Ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And an easier story to understand. But in general, it's probably much more of a, uh, a standard bell curve, mm -hmm. as you'd see with other diverse traits for yeah. people. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about more about the brain. You mentioned uh, the brain a little bit and kind of what goes on when we do take a risk. And I thought it might be useful uh, given your past and uh, the kind of people that listen uh, to the show if we just talk about maybe one time uh, that we can recall taking a risk. For me, uh, I have this very distinct memory of uh, I think I was in middle school of doing one of these like cliff jumps into water probably a, a 25 or so foot cliff and was very 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 uncomfortable uh standing at the top there uh eventually i did it probably because there were a lot of people around me doing it um what is going on in my brain when i'm deciding whether or not to take the risk to jump yeah and that's you know that's such a great example because it's one that like most people can connect with mm -hmm. you know most people end up standing on that cliff and they're with their group of friends on a weekend and you know some people have jumped the cliff already and they're they're putting the pressure on you mm -hmm. <laughs> i just saw my daughter last week stand on top of a cliff for probably about 10 minutes and and uh feel that pressure you know it's it's a pretty awesome moment you know um and it's a memorable one which which kind of speaks to what's going on in the brain there there's mm -hmm. a lot of memory that gets stored uh when that risk is you know right on the plate there but uh you know, when you're standing up there, you have to imagine that your brain is doing all kinds of calculations. You know, it's kind of looking at the task at hand. It's kind of looking at the social pressures. Uh, did anybody jump it yet? Have you had five people jump it already? Are there people out there in boats watching you? You know, mm -hmm. so there are risks in all kinds of ways. It's not just the physical risk, but the social risks are pretty high, you know, as well. Um, so if you look at the brain, you know, all kinds of different areas in the brain are getting activated. And one of the important areas is called the amygdala. And, uh, you know, that's our fight or flight center. And when that thing activates, it makes you feel like you shouldn't be there. <laughs> you know, you should probably turn around. Maybe you should kind of walk around and maybe not do it that day. That's the one that kind of starts to question your judgment. But, you know, and it creates this kind of subjective sense of fear and anxiety and communicates to all kinds of other parts of the brain too. And one is uh, in the brainstem, this area called the locus ceruleus. And when that thing gets activated, it starts dumping norepinephrine into the brain. And that's just like central nervous system adrenaline. And so adrenaline makes us tend to not want to do things. It kind of creates this sense of anxiety. And uh, we all know what that feels like, you know, for sure. But at the same time, you've got this other area called the nucleus accumbens, and that's kind of the reward center. And that area, along with this area called the ventral tegmentum, the dopamine starts to flow in there. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time that you're getting really anxious, you're also getting this kind of rewarding sensation. Before you even so that, Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's all kind of activating at once, for sure. So once you make the move and say you launch the thing, you end up in the water and the amygdala and the locus ceruleus start to shut down because they realize as you come up to the surface, wow, I'm, I'm okay, <laughs> you know, and this is awesome at this moment. And at that point, 
all the norepinephrine, the central nervous system adrenaline there starts to fall off and the amygdala and the locus ceruleus. And all of a sudden you're left with this really warm glow of dopamine, you know, that's pumping through the nucleus accumbens. Mm -hmm. And at that point, that dopamine is like the hook. You know, you get that. Everyone that's done the thing that you're that you did there knows what that feeling is like when you're, you're thinking, gosh, I think I want to go back up there and maybe try that one again. <laughs> and, and that's that. That's what dopamine does. You know, it creates this really, really kind of power. I, could, I just call it the hook. Mm-hmm. Really, it really creates this powerful hook, it kind of creates this feeling like like this is what life's about. You know, it creates this almost kind of transcendental kind of experience in a way. And it, it's really powerful. It's like this remarkable uh, hook that makes you want to come back and do that thing again. And next time you go up, you might stand up at the top again and think, gosh, what, why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> but when you do it again, and you hit that water again, suddenly you're back in the dopamine glow and that awesome moment. At some point, I think when I started to learn a little bit more about risk and, uh, and maybe luck, uh, I, I approach these situations like I'll, I'll do it once just to try it. And then I really, really don't want to do it again. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Yeah. And it's probably, you know, you, you're, I mean, you, you've probably got an area of the brain that's, that's creating some sort of judgment there, you know, oh, and it's, okay. it's probably, probably in the frontal lobes that are, that are overcoming kind of your own huh. sense of need for immediate reward. Uh, people that tend to have less, uh, kind of input from the frontal lobes of the brain will might, might respond more to this kind of impulsive need for the immediate gratification that comes from dopamine. And, but you, you may have a different style there. You may have other parts of the brain that are overcoming that need for that dopamine How in that cool. moment. That's very yeah. interesting. Um, when, sorry, like, uh, as far as like your, so you used to be an extreme skier. When did you become a psychiatrist? Like when, uh, were those things happening at the same time? Uh, yeah, they were, you know, I went to college and, and did a pre-med program at UC Boulder uh-huh. and then I came out to squaw and then skied for a couple of years and then went back to medical school. So I really wasn't just in the ski industry for, I wasn't there for very long um, just doing that alone. Uh, so a lot of the skiing that I did was uh, throughout medical school and residency as well. So I was definitely on the medical track, uh, right from the very beginning. And I knew that that was the track that was probably right for me in the long run. Did people find it ironic that you were kind of this extreme skier yet also in medical school for, uh, psychiatry? Yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone okay. kind of jokes when you go into psychiatry, you're there to fix yourself, you know, you're this crazy nut out in the mountains and, and are you trying to just analyze all your friends? And, you know, to me, in the long run, it created this really healthy combination of really trying to get down deeper into understanding risk a lot more. And I think without having the psychiatry training, I don't think I would understand it to the depths that I feel like I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, I really wouldn't understand the psychology of it without having, you know, had the experience up in the mountains. When you've had that personal experience, you can start to identify with some of the things that you're learning, you know, about the brain, about the brain's anatomy and the physiology and everything. So it's a really, you know, really fun combination, actually. And I still to this day, you know, when I go out, I'm always kind of tuning into the to the physical experience, the mental experience and, and identifying the certain parts of the brain that are either being activated or huh. shutting down or being inhibited and, and so on. That doesn't you know, ruin just... the experience for you. 
No, not at all. It enhances the experience. <laughs> it makes it, oh, it enhances it yeah. 100%. Yeah, it's a lot of fun for sure. But it also, you know, it helps kind of, un, it helps me be perhaps a little bit more mindful uh-huh. about what's dri- what's driving me. You know, like you were saying, when you, when you hit that water, perhaps you didn't necessarily want to go back up and do it again. And there are times when in the impulsive part of me might think, gosh, I should really go back up and do that again. But the, you know, the frontal lobes might say, no, it's the, for these reasons, you probably shouldn't. Yeah. So I think it's helped me with decision-making along the way too. Um, you've spoken out about how extreme sports are on a very dangerous trajectory or maybe have already arrived at a very dangerous place where um, we're just pushing the limits so much. Did you see yourself on a dangerous trajectory? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, not not to the degree that I thought I couldn't control it necessarily, but uh, certainly with uh, you know everybody that I was hanging out with and just the you know the larger cultural drift within the sport and actually all adventure sports, um, you know I recognized that that risk was definitely there. I think one thing that's um, you know, it's important to understand that, you know, while as an adventurer, you may think like you're this independent thinker, um, you're actually part of a huge uh, social system. And the social system has a lot of power over your decision making. What do you mean by that? And well, um, you know, it's, I don't know if you've had this experience, but, you know, I've over the years have observed that people tend to think that the highest risk takers are these independent thinkers that they make their own decisions, that they make their own calculations. Um, but you know, that's kind of like thinking that the earth is flat, um, because you're not taking into account all the different social pressures Mm. that come into play when you take risks. And the further you dive in to try to understand it, the more you realize that the social system has a ton of power over all of us. Uh, when we make decisions. And so, for instance, when you were standing up on that cliff, uh, thinking whether you're going to jump that 25 footer or 30 footer or not, it would look a lot different if you were there alone. Well, I wouldn't have jumped if I were alone. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, huh? But, I mean, that just that one moment yeah. really speaks to all of this. Yeah. And uh, there, there are certain elements within the social system that, that, uh, that just really intriguing to me. Um, you know, one being that there's this thing called social contagion there where, and we can't help it. We can't avoid uh, something that comes through the social contagion model. Um, when you're with a bunch of people and you're close to them, say they're your friends and you have a relationship with them, and they have a certain trait or they do something in particular that's going to affect your decision making at a very deep level. And some, sometimes it's not at a conscious level. And so if you're amongst a group of friends and you all go out for the day and people start doing certain things, uh, that behavior is going to start rubbing off on you. And so uh, without you even knowing it. And so just like for you that day, jumping off that cliff, uh, you know, there was some social contagion going on. And uh, what's interesting is the contagion, the power of the contagion is higher, uh, the fewer of degrees of separation between you and somebody else. So if you have a really strong relationship with somebody, if there's one degree of separation there, then the power is very strong. Mm. But it can go out many degrees of separation. 
So there are people that you don't even know that may have an impact on you that might be three degrees of separation from you. And so, so I guess, you know, kind of bringing it back in, um, social contagion can have significant impacts on what you do out there in the adventure sports world. And so you want to be pretty selective if you're really in the high risk area. Um, you want to be very selective with who you go with. And I'm sure social media only uh, exacerbates this effect. Yeah, definitely. Um, I haven't really seen a, a lot of research on that, but you can yeah. only imagine that the degrees of separation are fewer. Yeah, even somebody, you know, all the way across the, the world uh, in a completely different country, uh, the degrees of separation are going to reduce as soon as they post something on Instagram or Facebook. Right, and just the availability of information. My uh, cousin, who's, I believe, around 13 right now, was showing me a video, like one of his trick shot videos. Have you ever seen these trick shot things? No, I haven't. Uh, the, it's like, a, just like an, uh, an impossible-looking basketball shot, and you only get the highlight of right. it. They try it maybe a thousand times before they actually get it. Right. <laughs> and sp- <laughs> the kid spent like, like 10 hours <laughs> trying to get this one shot. <laughs> Yeah, and then that's the one that's posted. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there's a little bit of skewing going on. Yes, yeah. yes. Perception. <laughs> that's funny. Just in terms of social contagion, I mean, some of the interesting things, and there are other other elements of the social system that affect us too, but uh, with social contagion, some interesting points about it are that uh, contagion spreads more strongly in under certain conditions. And one is... Uh, it depends on the identity of the subject. So if you have somebody right in the middle of the social system that has a primary behavior, mm-hmm. if that person is male and if they're aggressive and if they're positively reinforced by the group around them, then that behavior is going to spread through the group a lot more quickly. And so when you look at action sports and adventure sports, uh, typically that's the profile mm-hmm that you see. We see a lot of males doing very aggressive things that are positively reinforced by the entire world. Now, is it, is <laughs> it, so, is it, uh, well, males are, uh, tend to be more aggressive to begin with, right? Uh, yes, but there, that's also an independent factor. So, okay. so okay. aggression, so aggression itself okay. actually is a, is a known variable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yes, male, but when you put those, those three together, and that's typically what you see, those are the hard chargers that most of us are watching in the movies or they're in the ads mm-hmm. or they're leading industries, essentially. So when you look at spreading you know, risky behaviors, that's a very quick way to do it. And we're doing it all the time. So, um, so. there is probably a benefit of, uh, obviously, of having uh, like social pressures. I mean, I do a lot of things that I wouldn't know that I was capable of unless or without without social pressure i wouldn't have known that i was capable of those things definitely yeah what you're speaking to is this idea called social facilitation which is just this idea that when you're when you're fairly good at something um you're actually going to get better at it uh in the face of you know being in front of people and doing it and so um so that's very true you know anybody that's that's trained for the olympics maybe they're going down the mogul run or they're you know hitting the park um they're going to do a lot better uh, in the Olympics. Their runs are probably going to be better in the Olympics uh, just because of those social pressures. Yeah, so they can definitely be positive in a lot of ways. So you, you've recognized that there's this kind of dangerous trajectory, but but it's not just extreme sports. It's all sports, right? I mean, like 
athletes or anybody on the extreme end of the distribution wants to push the limits. Basketball players, tennis players, everybody's doing it. The problem is that skiing is dangerous. Do you think that this can be stopped? Uh, no, no. There's, and I don't think it should necessarily be stopped. Um, you know, we we've been working and trying to help people improve their decision making in high risk sports. So, and you're right. You know, a lot of the adventure sports. I'm a kayaker. I'm a skier. Uh, I've wanted my kids to kind of get into these sports as well. But you know that they can get killed doing it or they can get seriously injured uh, with these sports, you know, rock climbing, all these various different sports out in the outdoors um, are risky. Uh, And, uh, you know, I don't think I'd ever keep my kids from these sports, but I definitely want them to know uh, and be mindful of all the different pressures so that they can be more independent in their thinking and make effective decisions, you know, and safer decisions out there. But no, we're never going to stop the upper I don't know if you call it the upper echelon of, you know, risk takers. I mean, these, these folks are like you were talking about earlier, genetically wired. It's probably a lot of developmental forces there for them, their personality styles and how it engages the general public as well to really optimize those social pressures and their activities. Um, so, you know, we'd never be able to shift the expanding model. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting to tie in is this idea, let's just go back to the neurobiology a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, When we take a risk uh, and we follow through with it, usually what happens is the brain anticipates what it's going to be like. So when you're standing up on that cliff and you're going to jump into the water, your brain makes a prediction on what the experience is going to be like. And then you push off and all of a sudden you're in the air and you're in the air for maybe a little longer than you thought, you know, so there's going to be a surprise to the brain in that moment. And what that surprise does when the, when the experience actually overshoots your prediction, the brain actually releases dopamine in the uh, nucleus accumbens in the reward center. And when that concentration of dopamine goes from one level up to a higher level, that's when we experience reward. And so it's the shift in dopamine that actually we're all seeking all the time, mm. you know, with anything that we do. So we want to have novel experiences, you know, regularly through life. And so when you think about that being a primary driver for risk-taking in action sports, you know, we're always having to push further out, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea is to, you know, continue to go further, continue to go higher, to continue to go faster, um, because that's going to continue to surprise the brain. But all we're doing is we're satisfying this this kind of primal evolutionary reward system in our brain. I mean, it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's all relative, right? Like uh, yeah. when you when you first start your diet, it's harder than continuing your diet, right? Or if you've been eating sugar for a while, <laughs> you crave sugar more. Uh, is that related? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, these things do translate to other things like diet, um, definitely sugar addictions, uh, drug addictions, right. drug addictions. Um, exercise addictions, mm-hmm. work addictions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to alter that reward system. We're trying to alter that dopamine level so that we actually experience subjectively, we, we experience the reward mm-hmm. there. So when you think about it, you know, if you have an adventure that, 
goes out and climbs Everest 50 times, it's probably not going to be that surprising anymore. Right. You know, so they have to go to K2 they got, or they have to go to Annapurna. Uh-huh. And so that envelope, we can't, we could never expect from a neurophysiologic standpoint, we could never expect that envelope to stop expanding. You know, with my kids, what we talk about all the time is, well, there are a lot of different ways to expand that envelope. You don't just have to keep going in this kind of unilateral direction, mm-hmm. which is higher and higher risk. You can bring all kinds of other flavors into it, yeah, which yeah. continue to make it a novel experience. How how so? What other what other uh, like dimensions do you bring in? Well, if you know, if we go out, uh, say we go to the Eastern Sierra, and we're going to go backcountry skiing uh, with my son and my daughter. And, you know, my son wants to go right up to that major couloir that he saw from the car, you know, mm-hmm. and he wants to go hit that physical risk. My daughter kind of wants to stop along the trail side and check out that cool little yellow flower and really tune into that thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And for my son, um, it's hard for him to kind of sit down and slow down a little bit and kind of tune into the moment and get down and really tune into that flower, tune into what the natural world's providing right in that very moment. But once he does, because he's got this idea that he's supposed to go up and he's supposed to, from a social pressure standpoint, he's supposed to go up and hit that couar and maybe GoPro it and then Instagram it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but when he actually sits down with us and we, you know, sitting by the gurgling stream or we're checking out these flowers and we're just checking out the amazing moment that we have in that, in that space, in that natural space, then he starts to get it and it starts to kind of get into him at that point. So we spend a lot of time actually tuning into all the different perceptual experiences when we're out there as much as we can. And I do my best to kind of downplay the high risk, you know, to downplay that that's what life's about, mm-hmm. that you can get dopamine all over the place. So what is, uh, uh, how, how does that increase in dopamine affect our decision making? So you talked about the person jumping off, you're in the air longer than you thought, you get this rush of dopamine. What is, yeah. how does that impact your decision making at that moment? Like you were saying before, there, there are some people that are more guided by forethought and then there are some people that are more guided by the actual feeling of reward, that kind of immediate gratification of what that reward gives you. And so for people that really, uh, really uh, organize their life around feeling that reward in a very immediate way, you know, it's going to significantly affect their decisions. They're going to be seeking behaviors that bring that on quickly. I mean, you can think about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or putting yourself in highly, you know, physically risky places. Um, that'll do that very quickly. Um, you know, and everybody's, everybody's got their own individual way of approaching it, but for people that are based on, you know, that base their lives and revolve around that immediate need for reward, you know, they're going to be very much guided by dopamine mm-hmm. and the shift in dopamine. You know? What was this? Oh, there is a study decision-making under sexual arousal. I think it was, I think mm-hmm. they, they like had people masturbate and then take, uh, uh, some sort of like risky decision-making task. Yeah. During, yeah. Yeah. And, and found that yeah. making like <laughs> just like outrageous decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's very interesting. And, and you got to imagine when people get in states of arousal and, you know, obviously he's, he's studying arousal mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, and, and there's also arousal in the physical risk area too. You know, when people are standing on top of the Palisades, at Squaw Valley, and yeah. there's 50 people lying in the cornice, and everybody's cheering, and they're pole whacking, and they're just having a blast. Um, there's a lot of arousal going on. Uh, obviously, that's you know triggering you know dopamine release. Yeah. 
And what's interesting is dopamine starts to loosen. It, it, it loosens us up, you know, it kind of loosens the binds in all kinds of ways. And, you know, one of the main reasons that evolutionarily we have that is because it helps us learn, it helps us kind of see outside the box. When we've been thinking that there's only, you know, one way to do something, suddenly the dopamine flows in and we'll start to see 10 ways to do something, mm. you know. And so it starts to loosen us up in all kinds of ways. From a, and, and, and so what you're talking about with that, that uh, experience in his study is that the dopamine there is starting to loosen up these associations. It's starting mm. to loosen up. Yeah. Uh, what we think would be right or wrong or and all of a sudden it all starts to mesh and it's got an evolutionary purpose. You know, it's supposed to be there because yeah. otherwise we'd be so rigid that we wouldn't survive as a species. So I'll post, uh, I'll find that paper and post the link on, on this episode's page. It's I, I vaguely remember it was a couple of years ago, but it's a, a, a kind of an interesting study. Yeah. It was a fascinating one yeah. for sure. I remember running across it a few years ago too. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to talk about with, uh, risk or extreme sports before we move on to Squaw Valley? Well, there's one other thing that we could just maybe touch on mm -hmm. from the social aspect of risk. Um, that's, that's, I've always found pretty interesting and it's just this idea of, uh, de-individuation, which is, it's this process of our, it's a process of when we enter groups, we start to lose our ability to think independently. Mm. And when we increasingly identify with a group, you know, so you see it like with athletic teams or you see it with fraternities or you see it with organizations, you know, when you start getting into groups, you start to lose your own independent thinking uh, because it's more worthwhile for you to start thinking like the group. And this is a very subconscious process and it's another risk factor for, you know, adventure sports and decision-making out there because your decision-making when the group is very cohesive and you're, you're very tight as a group, um, is going to be more based on what the group needs uh, versus you need. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's another thing I talk about with my kids a lot, that you're going to experience de-individuation out there. When you go to Squaw Valley and you get in a group of people, you're going to start to think like the group does. And so if the group starts doing something, it's very likely that you're going to start doing it too. And it's fun to actually, when you know that, kind of watch it happen. Yeah. Um, because it's, it happens all the time. <laughs> so when when you go out on your first day of skiing this winter with somebody or a group of people, just watch it. It's already in action, you know, at that point. And so, you know, with de-individuation, it's just another argument that when you go out there in the mountains, you want to be with a group of people that you're comfortable with, you know, that, that have the same kind of risk values that you do. And so group selection, I guess it points to this idea of group selection being really, really paramount. Coming up, we'll hear about the movement to keep Squaw true as unwanted real estate development threatens to transform the North Lake Tahoe area. But first, let's talk about some wanted and welcome development. That is development in men's underwear from Saks Underwear. Saks underwear is designed differently. They use these outrageously comfortable and technical fabrics and a 3D support system called the Ballpark Pouch to develop the most comfortable and advanced underwear in the world. I'm a huge fan of the Quest Loose Cannon. This Quest fabric is ultra breathable and moisture wicking, and the Loose Cannon design fits a little bit more like a boxer while still maintaining the support for your boys. These Quest Loose Cannons are perfect for guys with bigger legs. I wear them all the time on my bike ride to work. Four hilly miles each way, 
and I never have to worry about uncomfortable chafing or bunching. I want you to experience Saks underwear and all of the benefits that the most comfortable underwear in the world has afforded me. We have an amazing limited time deal for you. $5 off and free shipping on your first purchase. Use my promo code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout at saxunderwear.com. Again, that's saxunderwear, S-A-X-X underwear.com. Use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout for $5 off plus free shipping. And thanks. North Tower is this place that exists between huge urban centers. We've got Reno to the east, and we've got Sacramento and the whole Bay Area to the west. Mm -hmm. And yet it's kind of held on to this kind of rustic-y feel. And uh, it's one of those things we really value about living here. And we hear, you know, when we sit on the dock, the marina dock uh, in the summer, we'll hear these people from other countries come walking out. You can just overhear the conversations. And, and I've heard many, many times people talking about how have they held on to this? You know, how, how have they done it? Um, because so many places get overblown, you know, yeah. and, you, and you can feel that. But Tahoe's really held on to it. It's really awesome. So what is the tension exactly that, you know, we've been seeing for the past, what, decade or so, maybe more? Go ahead. Yeah, it's been since about 2012. Oh, okay. Yeah. So five years. Yeah. Um, yeah. What What is this tension between, is it like a development group and a conservation group or what? what's going on? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, um, you know, the Squaw Valley has been owned and operated. It's been kind of a mom and pop shop for, for many, many decades. And uh, it then transitioned in 2012 and it was sold to KSL Capital Partners, which is a, it's an investment firm from Denver. And uh, when they came into town, everybody was really excited. You know, we were all pumped because we were like ready to upgrade this place and we're ready to think about possibilities. There was a lot of just excitement in the air and you could feel that. Um, but it became pretty apparent as time went on, and it probably took about a year, year and a half. People started to get a little suspicious because it started to look like there was an agenda <laughs> and the agenda wasn't necessarily in the best interest of the people from North Tahoe or the area or even Lake Tahoe itself. I mean, the area was, the agenda was there to benefit KSL Capital Partners. And um, once people started to realize that, uh, then the tension started to grow. And I think once that started to happen, then it started to really polarize the developer and, and not just the, not just with the conservation groups, but with, you know, really, frankly, most of the population in North Tahoe, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, most, it's been fascinating to watch. I mean, the people that support the development uh, are either financially involved themselves or they have an institutional relationship mm. with Squaw. But most people outside any of those binds, uh, they have a much different perspective. You know, they, they, they understand the value of this place. They understand the amazing uh, assets that the natural environment has in this place and the community has in this place. And I think people have really worried that the, the KSL Capital Partners Group was going to come and start to mine that away. So, uh, so any of the tension that was out there was really kind of based on the fear that every reason that we've moved here for uh, is at risk because of this hugely powerful group that's worth billions of dollars. 
you used to be an ambassador for Squaw Valley and then you resigned. Uh, so you were in some respects an institutional partner. Uh, yeah. What made you resign? You know, I sat back um, for quite a while, actually, probably a year and a half, maybe even close to two years, and just kind of watched everything. So I wasn't sure what was coming down the pike uh-huh. necessarily. And uh, but there was one point when I finally reached out and wanted to meet some of the people that were calling the shots. And uh, so I did. And, you know, in my day job, as a psychiatrist, you're always trying to analyze all kinds of things from, you know, real mental illness, but you're also, you know, one of your jobs is to look at personalities, you know, and personalities can have significant impacts on social systems, depending on what their personality is. And one thing I recognize is there was a very strong personality in the system that was calling all the shots. And, that personality uh, was, according to my judgment at the time, was going to start splitting people. And splitting people means that you start pitting, you know, one person against another. And what was amazing is the next couple of years, kind of watching this polarization and the splitting of the community start to occur, where you had people uh, start feeling less trust in one another. Um, these are people that have been skiing together on this mountain for maybe. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And all of a sudden there was this division that was just going right down the middle. And I think there were a lot more people obviously on the side that we talked about already. They're very suspicious of the agenda of the the development company, but there were still, you know, there's a number of people that had financial relationships and institutional relationships with the developer. And so there'd be, there was this clear line right between the two groups and the experience in Tahoe just, you know, the quality of the, just the, the whole vibe really started to drop off because there was just so much tension in the air. Mm-hmm. So it really wasn't the conservation groups. I mean, they were there kind of battling, you know, for the environment and so on, but uh, it was really a community issue at that point. So, so yeah, my resignation, I guess um, that was a long-winded answer, but the resignation was because I could see it coming down the pike mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be a part of that polarization you know, I wanted to fight for the community and what the community really wanted. So you mentioned when they first arrived, everybody was pretty excited about the development. Obviously, these people see, I'm guessing, tourism as the big driver for money. As a resident, what's what, what was your vision? What is your vision for like how you can still maintain this mountain culture uh, while still bringing more money to the area? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's important to know that like Tahoe has no problem with cash, you know, this place or, or tourism, you know, it's, it's got a remarkable asset in a number of assets. Obviously the remarkable asset is the lake and all the mountains around it. Um, that, that's the true marketing, you know, that's, that's what draws people here. You know, they come and have an experience in the summer on this lake and they're like, I think we're going to come back. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> we were from the East coast. I mean, I grew up on the East coast and my parents, yeah, forged their relationship here on Lake Tahoe. And next thing you know, our summer trips, we'd always end up in Tahoe at some point. So there's a lot of draw for people to come back. So um, that's always going to be there. And I think the important question is, how do we preserve those things that draw people here? You know, how do we preserve those assets? Mm-hmm. How do we make ourselves look different than all the other ski resorts that may have been, you know, franchised in a way? Yeah. You know, you see all these 
ski resort is kind of putting up all kinds of attractions, you know, to get people there. Like you, you see zip lines, you see, um, you see water parks, you see the roller coasters on the mountains and that sort of thing. And, and it's funny because, you know, being a person that's been a part of mountain culture for a long time, you just kind of laugh because you realize that's not why yeah. people really come here. You know, those are very desperate attempts and probably yeah. short, short lived. Yeah, definitely. I've got a friend, uh, his name's John Muir Laws. He's not related to okay. John Muir, but he, he certainly should be because he's, he's, <laughs> he is a lot like him. Anyway, um, he, you know, he talks about distractions that, you know, really what these attractions are. When you put a roller coaster on a mountain or you put a water park on a mountain it, or in a beautiful high Sierra Valley, it's a distraction actually from what the real mountain experience is. And, you know, people might come up and they might spend their time sending their kids on the roller coaster and putting them in the water park, but that doesn't nearly compare to the real experience of engaging the place, you know, and the value that comes from engaging the place just completely outweighs the value that comes from having attractions. So the uh, campaign is called Keep Squaw True, and there's a movie called Keep Squaw True coming out this month. Tell us more. Yeah. You know, Keep Squaw True uh, was really kind of something that was harnessed by Sierra Watch, which is one of the local conservation groups uh, based out of Nevada City. They've conserved a lot of land around uh, the northern Sierras, and Squaw Valley is their big one right now. And that's a huge part of it. There's definitely the environmental protection part and kind of protecting the assets of these places, the beautiful assets that we have. But it's also about protecting really the community structures, you know, within these places. We want to have communities that are healthy. And we want to have, com have communities where there's diversity, you know, where there's tolerance of different ways of thinking, where there's a lot more complexity to the system than just a single agenda coming from one side. And so we're fighting for all these things, and that's what Keep Squatcher is about. The one thing we haven't had a ton of is is marketing dollars. You know, we're not operating mm -hmm. on a billion-dollar budget. So uh, we can't just push a bunch of marketing out there and try to persuade people through that. Um, but we thought that it would be a really cool idea to have the community have its say. <laughs> and uh, so we decided to make a movie called The Movie to Keep Squat True, and it's really about this entire process of how the community has engaged um, the developer. Uh, it really starts out with talking about the history of Tahoe and just the remarkable assets that we do have in this place and kind of hits on those elements that we really want to protect. Uh, but then it kind of goes down chronologically how it all started to play out in Squaw and what's occurred. And we don't hesitate to be honest with it. You know, we're going straight to the truth uh, as we've seen them anyway. Um, you know, we're still midstream in this story, so I think it'd be really cool for people really across mountain culture to kind of watch. And, uh, you know, if we really succeed, I think what it's going to show is that when communities come together, when a lot of Davids come together, they can really take on a Goliath. And we're right on the cusp of making that happen here. Yeah, I mean, we've seen what can happen when there isn't action from the community. I mean, you look at some of these ski towns in America – they're pretty different from when I used to go to them when I grew up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's at the same time, while it's, while it's such a heavy situation, there's a lot of weight to it, you know, and it feels, it 
feels negative or feels weighty, um, you know, there's just an amazing opportunity here. I mean, yeah. look at the, the change in trajectory that could occur. Like if we really win this thing, it's going to set a precedent for what communities all across the nation, all the mountain communities, it's going to set a precedent with how developers will have to have to deal with them. You know, they're going to have a lot more power yeah. as it's been done before. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's going to be released in mid-September. We're going to have our premiere in Truckee on September 14th. And then uh, we're going to probably be re- releasing it online and then putting it in some uh, having premieres kind of around uh, in ski towns around the nation. So we're really pumped about it. I'm excited to see how it develops. Excited to see the movie. Um, that is Dr. Rob Gaffney. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. That's Dr. Rob Gaffney, psychiatrist and author of Squallywood. We'll have links to everything that we talked about on today's episode in the show notes and also on our website, mtnmeister.com. That includes tickets to the movie premiere on Friday, September 14th in Truckee. Up next is our company spotlight segment of Mountain Meister. In our company spotlights, we introduce you to lesser known outdoor brands and then we review the products. Companies do give us the gear to review, but they're not allowed to pay to be featured on this segment. Then we get to tell you our real thoughts, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today's company spotlight is with Koala Tree. I spoke with their CEO and founder, Charlie Bessie. Yeah, so the, the meaning behind uh, Koala Tree is, is a, a play on words that the main um, emphasis is quality. Qual- creating quality products um, with that we can we can produce um, using eco and organic materials um, along the way that we can then deliver to our end consumer for a cheaper price by going direct to to mm-hmm. consumer. Um, and so, if you look at what a cola is, the main yield of a plant of uh, it would be your cola, and that is like on a broccoli plant. That's going to be the 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 main. Um, center part of the plant mm-hmm. and that's your hardiest most quality part of of the plant and then um we started out on a nonprofit organic farm in colorado on the colorado river and uh we had plenty of fruit trees and so trees just kind of it was kind of our way to bring together the the vegetable gardening and the tree farming and the organic message that we were going to go go promote through our clothing so the brand is eco-friendly, eco-minded. What kind of people uh, wear these products, and then what kind of recyclables do you use? Yeah, of course. So I think with Qualitry, we so some of us came off of a brand called Skull Candy Headphones, and we saw how you could be an upsetter in the industry, and how you could make things that were stale and boring fun. We saw the same type of idea behind uh, uh, organic and sustainable methods of clothing. It was really attached to like a yoga or a mindful type demographic, but we wanted to break the mold with that. And we wanted to make sustainable organic products out of recycled x-ray films and lunch trays and plastic bottles that are your beer bottles from baseball games. Um, all of those materials I just mentioned, you don't have to dye them in the process. You just recycle them, put them into pellets and use them. We also do some stuff out of recycled coffee grounds and, um, we've done a lot of really fun elements of recyclables and it's going to be a t-shirt that'll last you for honestly a lifetime. 
So I think if we could just go down uh, through the pants in particular, kind of your flagship products, um, maybe starting with the the drawstrings. There are uh, two two sets of drawstrings on the pants, one in the waist and then one all the way at the bottom of the pant leg. Yeah, um, the functionality be- behind that, the first pair that we did, the Virgin One had one of those utility belt tops on it. Mm-hmm. And the response that we got back from our climbers and our preppers and ourselves also was that it just it got in the way. Even if you're right, driving your car kind of got in the way. So that's how the the drawstring at the top was born. We replaced it with just a simple drawstring. And that way you get the loose comfort fit that you want, but you also can keep your pants tight and looking really professional. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have belt loops too. So if you want to add a belt, if you're wearing them to the office or, 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 you know, you, you, some, something like you have a heavy pack, that's how, that's how that was born. And we added them to the bottom so that you can have that, you, you, uh, universal crossover of a half pant to a three quarters pant to a full pant. Mm. Um, so whether you're doing martial arts or yoga or out hiking, everyone needs a little bit of cool off on their legs. And that's what that function gives you. Um, let's talk about kind of the fit of the pant. Uh, you have a slim fit pant and then a relaxed fit, right? We do. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We have a slim fit and a relaxed fit. Um, the slim fit is, is been very popular with our Huckberry, um, type, type customer. Um, somebody that maybe is more in San Francisco, New York, Chicago, LA, and wants to wear the pants in the city. Um, and also then have them be their weekend warrior pants. Um, the relaxed fit tends to be some something that that works for um, for somebody that maybe wants to do a little bit more flexibility. Have them for climbing at a gym, or have them for um, you know an underlayer snowboarding or something. You'll kind of want a little bit more fit there. But I guess in simple, everybody has their preference, right? I'm a slim fit guy. Um, and just different guys in our office are relaxed fit. So. Different size legs, man. I I've got big quads and. The slim fits, I just don't. Uh, they're they're still a little too tight. Def, definitely, we you're gonna have like our, our pro mountain biker Eric Porter. I mean, he couldn't fit in the slim fits at all, and so we we just sent him a pair of the relaxed fits, and now he can wear our pants. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I have him, I have him here, and like the, there's still a taper on the relaxed fit, right? It's not just a straight leg all the way down. Correct. Yep. It still is a taper on the relaxed fit. So you can still, we still want you to be able to look fashionable and, and, um, have them be functional, mm-hmm. but a little bit looser, like you said, for, for road bikers and mountain bikers and people that have a little bit bigger quads. Exactly. Okay. And then finally, let's go into the fabric of the pants. Yeah. Yeah. The fabric of the pants is my most uh, exciting thing to talk about. We, um, tried to go outside of this factory called um, Everest in Taiwan. They are phenomenal. They um, are one of the top leading green factories in the world. Um, And we went over there uh, in 2013 to develop this four-way stretch, ribstop, recycled nylon, um, poly blend that we would basically be indestructible. And we we went over there to produce this for one of our skateboarders. So it needed to be strong enough to withstand skateboarding and asphalt and, and rubbing against that, <laughs> but it needed to be comfortable enough to still be able to reach your maximum flexibility and athleticness. Um, when they first came out and showed up to the, to the office, we had about half the office thinking that they were absolutely 
hideous and the other half that said they were amazing. And then after people tested them and we made some of those adjustments, everyone just, the feedback we got was through the roof that everyone just loved this fabric and it was comfortable and waterproof and, you know, indestructible. Um, and Quinn, who we, we met up with today at Ever Changing Horizon, he's had his pair since like 2012 when it was a, or 2013 when it was a sample, like four months after that product development time when we got the first pair. And they're still they're still working. They're still they're they're definitely. He's had to re rewaterproof them, but other than that, they look and perform great. We're sending up a promo code for our listeners. Is that correct? It was twenty percent off. Yeah, it's going to be um, uh, Meister M E I S T E R. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Look forward to trying them out. Yeah, appreciate you. Have a great rest of the day, and thanks so much for having me. That's Koala Tree founder and CEO Charlie Bessie. Use the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, for 20% off at koalatree.com, C-O-A-L-A-T-R-E-E.com. Now let's hear what Hannah Van Wetter and I thought of the trailhead pants. Every time we record these interviews, I feel like I'm totally lame because you talk about all this epic stuff that you've done with the gear and my version of it just doesn't seem as cool. So what'd you do? What'd you do with these pants? So I took these pants out on their first trip and roommate Max and I, well, my roommate, but also my boyfriend, Max, Ben's old roommate, went on a 23-mile uh, backpacking loop in the Crazy Mountains. Crazy Mountains. The Crazy Mountains. Okay. The Crazy Mountains are about an hour and a half outside of Bozeman, Montana, where we live. And it's a cool mountain range. It's really wild, and it's unique because it has limited access. It's surrounded by private land, like cattle ranches and farmland. We went in for a two-day, one-night um backpack and i brought these can these pants as sort of a, a camp pant so i wore mm-hmm. shorts hiking because it was beautiful 75 degrees and then as soon as we got to our campsite we were camping by this beautiful lake and went for a swim and then immediately you know put on warm dry clothes and was super pleasantly surprised by the warmth of these pants i they were the only you know i didn't bring any long underwear or anything and it got to be probably probably about 30 degrees at night. Like we woke up to frost on the ground and everything, but it was such a beautiful night that we slept not in a tent. So we just slept on the Mm -hmm. side of this little lake. So I was in a sleeping bag in these pants and didn't wake up cold once. Every time you have texted me about like, have you gotten your pants yet? Have you gotten your pants yet? This was a whole saga about finding the right size for me, Uh, but we eventually did. Uh, You sounded a little less than enthused about... uh, about these pants just from like trying them on and then you actually got a chance to test them so like how did that compare to your expectation for how the pants would perform yeah it's funny so when ben talks about the issues that we had with sizing originally when we ordered these pants we both ordered the same yeah unisex sizing yeah unisex sizing so he ordered a medium i ordered a medium same fit and we both said to each other, like, wow, we're going to be shocked if these fit both of us, you know, if it's like a sisterhood of the traveling pants thing, because they were, were very different body shapes. As a result, they didn't fit Ben as well as they fit me. They, I kind of got them right on the first try. Um, and they're, they're still funny. Like, 
I wear them around the house and I have a hard time figuring out like what the look is. And I don't know if you, if you're, you know, have thought that, um, in the same, when I first got them, I was psyched. I was like, these are cool. You know, if they were black, maybe I'd wear them to work. They're like a little bit fancy type of yoga pants, kind of the athleisure that's in right now. And I think the two changes that I would make to these pants, and I have sort of figured it out aesthetically for me, are the drawstrings on the cuffs of the pants at the legs. Mm -hmm. I can't figure out how to make look right. Like if I leave them untied, they're sort of like dangling. If I tie them, they're sort of like cinched and they just look weird with my ankles. So what I've actually done is like rolled the cuffs twice, which I think is kind of silly because clearly the drawstring is like intentionally designed. I just don't, it doesn't look good on me and I don't see the point in it. I, I also agree. I don't really know what to do with the, uh, the drawstrings down low by the ankle because when they're in just like a regular, like shoelace format, uh, it looks kind of weird, right? Right. It's like, right. I have a bow by my ankles. Right. Uh-huh. And it's, I mean, I guess it's like, that's kind of the look right now or like the joggers with right, like a right. yeah. puffed ankle, mm-hmm. but I've never really found that those look all that good on me. Okay. Um, any other negatives? Um, I don't know. And maybe you can speak a little more to this cause you tried on a few different of the sizes, but the sizing is, is odd. Like mine definitely fit more like, like form fitting tights. And so I got a, a unisex medium. They fit for at least me who I wear, you know, a, a women's medium and everything. They fit pretty true to that. But I think as a man or someone with, you know, a little bit stockier legs, right. um, mediums are really tough fit because they're super tight in the thighs yeah yeah so i couldn't fit the medium Mm -hmm. so then i went to the medium relaxed fit which were just like entirely too big and then i went to relaxed fit small which is definitely the best fitting one they're uh they're i mean they're definitely more relaxed fit than the slim fit uh almost too much in some areas uh but for the most part it fits uh pretty well I agree with you that like I would feel way more comfortable at a campsite in these pants like at night like a fresh pair of dry clothing than I would like uh, hiking around or even going to the office. They like they really push this uh, hybrid athleisure hiking pant office pant. I don't know about wearing these to the office. Like people would definitely be like, "Yeah, you're wearing hiking pants right now." Right. And they're almost like, yeah, I mean, they're cooler looking than like zip offs or. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 But they still look like something that's, you know, like that in between technical sweatpant. Yeah. 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 Um, So did you notice that the pockets are enormous? Huge. They're nice. Okay. So you like that. The butt pockets too. The Uh butt pockets are, and maybe it's just like, women's pants in general don't have good pockets okay and these ones do have really good pockets and i like one of the butt pockets has velcro but the other one doesn't so it's kind of nice if you need to like put your wallet or something in yeah, there and yeah, have it a little yeah. more secure good feature um, but yeah the, the pockets are nice i was told you can fold the pants into the pocket as a stuff sack wow i, I tried to do that earlier uh it worked out okay but like I don't ever find myself needing to stuff my pants into something. Like, I just roll them up. Um, pros of these pants, yeah. I really like the material of them. And I think that they they fit a nice, like, I took them camping this, this weekend, not just to test them out, but they, they do fit sort of a hole that I have in my sort of adventure clothing wardrobe. I'm either between, like, Carhartts, which are too heavy to bring backpacking 
or like like Lululemon leggings or Nike leggings, like mm-hmm. running leggings that aren't as comfortable to wear, you know, after you swim and hike all right. day, you don't want something that constricting and, and like compression. So I do think that these pants fill a nice void for that. Max and Ben got a nice pair of like kind of all everything pants through a company called Thunderbolt and Max brought those pants. And I felt like these were, you know, my equivalent hiking pants in terms of their comfort, warmth, you know, decently good looking, lightweight. So you can bring a backpacking or they, you know, pack down really small. Yep. Um, So I do like that. I feel like it did fill a hole in my um, kind of wardrobe. Yep. Yep. I agree. Uh, Comparing them to Thunderbolt, they are $100 less. Uh, which is a pretty good deal. I like the Thunderbolt material a little bit more, but not that that much more. Thunderbolt right. uses a, the shoulder fabric, which is just like pretty awesome. Uh, but right. this this is also like a four way stretch, uh, very waterproof fabric. They could be a little bit more breathable. I don't know if you ever found yourself like getting a little toasty in them, uh, mm-hmm. like for the weight. But uh, yeah, like water sheds right off of them, and the material though. I haven't put it through like that rigorous of a test yet, but the material is supposed to be like pretty bomb proof. They're super comfortable. Like they feel yeah. like you're wearing kind of pajama pants. I was, I do. I had pajama pants written down in my notes for this episode. You did. Yeah. 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 I'm wearing them. I put them on for this episode so that I could, you know, get in the zone. And I, and I like, am totally happy hanging out in my house in these. Yeah. Um, but I do think they lack a little bit of that aesthetic value to be able to like, enjoyably wear them out of the house if you're not going to the gym or they're not quite as versatile as they make them out to be right at least in our opinions there are a lot of very 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 positive reviews on the website not sure how selective those positive reviews are where they come from i'm always weary of that but uh hannah would you buy these pants with your own money they retail for 89 dollars. i think I would buy these pants if they were on sale. Okay. If they were having a 50% off sale or something like that, I think I would buy these pants. Mm-hmm. Um, because they are, uh, you know, and I and I shop for something like this, and they do kind of fit a void in women's outdoors clothing that's comfortable and fairly versatile. But I think buying it with the caveat of like, okay, you can't buy the black ones wear them to work and then wear them backpacking for the weekend. Cause they just don't have that kind of versatility yep. in aesthetics. What about you, Ben? Would you buy these? Uh, not, f- not for me. Uh, but if I was, if I was like shaped differently, uh, and they didn't have the drawstring at the bottom, I would purchase these for $90. I think they're offering 20% off through Koala Tree, C-O-A- l-a-t-r-e-e dot com hannah thanks for your thoughts let me see those pants on you okay i kind of like those more you want to see ben's pants max what do you think wait go back so max can see you again oh they don't look terrible so his are the relaxed fit size small they're definitely far more relaxed in the fit yeah way more relaxed yeah baggy those would be perfect, like, rock climbing pants. Should have talked right. about rock climbing. I don't really rock climb. A lot of the pictures on the website are rock climbers, too. So, yes, for rock climbers, I could imagine they would be very comfortable. 
If these pants sound like they're for you, go check them out. Uh, Qualitry also sent Hannah and me the Nomad Packable Backpack, which retails for $39. Both of us really liked it. I found it to be a little bit hot on my back, but it fits a ton of stuff and it has this great padded stuff sack, which doubles as a protective pocket when the backpack isn't stuffed in it. The promo code MEISTER for 20% off includes everything on their website. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. If you have any potential Mountain Meisters or companies that you think would be great for our company spotlight segment, go send them my way. Or if you just want to say hello, do that. Ben at mtnmeister.com. Till next time, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to this podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.